Good. Well, let's go ahead and, and get started um, and uh, get to work. And let me pray as, as we do. Father, as always, I want to look to you to ask that you would be gracious to these friends, that this would be um, an hour well spent for them, that we would learn uh, from your word, that we would see things there that you have for us and that we would um, appreciate all the more what it means that you are a promise-keeping God and that Jesus um, particularly kept his promises um, and fulfilled those promises, that covenant uh, that accomplishes our redemption. I guard uh, my brothers and sisters from my misunderstandings and failings um, and uh, keep us all in your word, grant us a full measure of your spirit. We pray that your um, purposes would be served and you would be honored. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the first the first thing we can do is just look at these couple of chapters that I told you I'm not going to have anything to say about. Uh, these are the chapters that have to do with uh, what are called the temple discourses. Um, but go ahead and open up to Matthew 24. And, and we'll just at least give them a nod. The, the, all I will be able to do is say that they're really difficult to sort out. Um, and yet um, I don't want to just completely pass them by. Matthew gives us by far the longer account um, because he um, not only gives us more detail, but also because he then goes on to a couple of parables uh, that I think are, are very uh, important and I would want us to see. <clears throat> but um, the, the setting is that they're looking at the temple. Um, has, has anybody been to Jerusalem? Have anybody on the screen been to Jerusalem? Haven't? Um, if you get a chance to go, of course, please do. Uh, it, what what's what remains is is the is what's known as the Wailing Wall, the the western wall of the Temple Mount, which dates back um, all the way into this period. Um, but the temple, of course, itself is long since gone. But but it, it must have been an absolutely magnificent um, structure, and and so they're looking at it, they're talking about it, um, and and then Jesus says, yes, and it's all going to be destroyed. Um, and he was right. It didn't take long. Um, only later in that first century, 70 AD, the destruction came to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So the disciples ask in verse three of Matthew 24, tell us when will these things take place and what will be the sign of your appearing, your parousia and, and of the end of the age or the consummation of things. So right away, we've got interesting questions as to exactly what's in view. But um, what Jesus then goes on and talks about is um, trouble that's coming. And and what you seem to get is, is what sometimes is referred to as prophetic horizons. And the image that's suggested is that the prophets stand on one mountain peak and look out over, you know, three or four mountain peaks and describe what they see on the peak. But in between the peaks, of course, there is a lot of geography 
in between the peaks of time, there is a lot of time, and those peaks tend to run together. Um, I, I think that can be helpful. If you read the um, chapters in Isaiah, chapters 6 to 12, for instance, you'll see um, comments that would certainly seem to find fulfillment in the age of the prophet and of the king or priest that's in view, um, but also events then that, that telescope outward, uh, certainly to the coming of Jesus and his initial coming. And and it would seem that you've got that sort of thing going on here in Jesus's comments, that there is some element of it that is going to be fulfilled within his own century, not in his own lifetime, but in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the tribulation that will come with that. But then there is some ways in which what he's saying seems pretty clearly to go well beyond that. Um, so that when the um, description of the wars and rumors and wars um, of trouble coming in the, in the immediate verses there leads to verse eight, all these things are the beginning of beginnings the beginning of birth pang. So we're even, even all that kind of tribulation is, is referred to as the beginning of the beginning. And what then follows is verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom being preached throughout the whole world for a witness to all nations. And then the, the completion will come. It refers to the abomination of desolation in the holy place that's in the temple. In verse 21, he refers to a great tribulation. Um, and again, in verse 29, talks about the tribulation. Um, but then he talks about, in Matthew particularly, most clearly, the coming of the Son of Man, verse 27. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, or again, the, the appearing of the Son of Man. Um then what Matthew goes on to is, is really to urge readiness for what he presents as the day of the Son of Man, the appearing of the Son of Man, and emphasizes the fact that no one knows when that is going to be. Verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. And these are uh, Jesus' words in Matthew's telling. Uh, verse 42, be on the alert. You do not know on which day your Lord is coming. Uh, verse 44, for this reason, be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Who is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master puts in charge? Um, it is the one whose master finds him doing what he was called to do when the master returns. So the emphasis does seem to be on readiness. And in chapter 25 of Matthew, you get that um, worked out in a couple of parables. Um, the uh, the 10 virgins who go out to greet um, the bridegroom who's coming for the wedding feast. Um, and then it's also compared to the person who goes on a journey um, and leaves responsibilities with his um, servants that they are to take and do something with. Um, and then the final one begins in verse 31, where Matthew gives us this bit that is unique to Matthew, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
the nations will be gathered before him and there will be a judgment. The sheep and the goats separated. And the judgment in this case is based on on how people treat the least among them in the most fundamental ways of hunger and thirst, of being naked and needing clothing, of being a stranger and needing friendship, of being in prison. And the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed to the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. And then they say, when when did we do that? In verse 37. And in verse 40, the king says, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to one of these, my brothers of mine, even to the least, you did it to me. And inversely, those who have not cared, for them um, inadvertently were being indifferent to to Christ the King and are banished to eternal fire. Um it's a, it's a sobering parable and, and these parables that Matthew includes uh should get your attention. It you know, it's always an interesting question when you read the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John John becomes a Gospel, which in unpacking things really does um, become a Gospel of believing. And and it's clear that the work of Jesus, that the work Jesus calls you to, is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. But But that faith is always what the Apostle Paul will call the kind of faith that generates obedience, this supposed conflict between James and Paul is not a conflict at the end of the day. Um, faith without works is dead. Works that is not um, grown uh, as, as the fruit of faith is like is likewise dead. Um, so, you know, parables like this don't mean that salvation is by works or something like that. But but they're also a reminder that that faith is not not some frivolous um you know, saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take one of those boxes marked salvation. I kind of like that idea. It's free. Yeah, I'll, I'll have one of those. And then you go in your way. It, it is, as I say, Paul's phrase at the beginning and end of the book of Romans really stays with me. Um, and it is the obedience of faith. Um, and Abraham, uh, you see, is the example of that. Abraham believed God. How do we know that? He obeyed God. He did what God told him to. And that was Abraham's faith expressing itself. So here what we've got is a picture of people whose trust in God is so real that it just keeps manifesting itself in ways that they're not even aware of themselves. They're, they're just caring for people. Um, and, and lo and behold, without realizing it, they've been caring for Jesus that we are God's means of doing the work he wants to do. We are God's means of caring for the people he wants to care for, of being where he wants to be, of healing where he wants to bring healing. We are his means of doing that. Um, and to enter into that is to enter into that relationship with God of humble trust and obedience. So I, I don't, while I, I can't pretend to sort out the intricacies of Matthew 24 and 25 or of, um, 
Oh, Mark 13, I guess it is, and Luke 21. Um, I, I wouldn't want us to pass too quickly through these passages and not feel the weight, uh, particularly of the parables with which Matthew concludes that section. Um, I, I do want to go on to then Jesus's um, participation in the cup of the covenant, both in the Passover meal that he celebrates with his disciples and then in the garden where he agonizes in prayer. But before I do that, I'll just pause. Is there anything you do want to pick up on in these temple discourses or on Matthew's telling? And and please know that this is not the only 15 seconds in which you get to raise questions, okay? Um, I would welcome emails um, and well, I'm not sure I really want to be on Zoom a lot. I, I mean, phone calls, visits out in front of Pascal's are always very welcome. Um, but uh, please, seriously, uh, love to hear from you on these things and to get the occasional email this semester is always um, something very welcome uh, on any things we talk about in this class or anything else that's on your mind, honestly. But let me let me go ahead then. Um, I sent you a handout. Uh, did everybody get that? Do you have it available? Um, in the triumphal entry narrative, we saw Psalm one eighteen um, cited in all the Gospels uh, about the um, one who comes, uh, the King who comes humble and seated on the colt, the foal of a colt. Um, and also in Psalm 118 is this verse that I have on the handout. It's, uh, if you don't have the handout, you can go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, where Jesus says, did you never read in the scriptures, a stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew or Mark has it exactly the same way as Matthew. Luke quotes just the first half of the verse and adds the comment that whoever falls on that stone will be broken to pieces on whomever it falls. It will crush him. There is both a judgment here, but then a beginning of something. And I encourage you, as you read the scriptures, be aware of these images. Um, the apostle Peter, for instance, in his epistle will pick up on this one. And among the pictures that Paul and Peter give of the church, um, which is a fascinating study in its own right, there is um, that imagery of a, a, um, a, a building of living stones in which Christ is the chief corner. Um, so, so here is this, the heart of this imagery. Um, Jesus pulls it in from Psalm 118. And it's an example of the kind of thing that that you find in the Hebrew scriptures that is often puzzling, that's hard to interpret, but that by the time of Jesus has certainly cultivated a messianic expectation. And then in the gospels and in the epistles, Jesus is seen as, as fulfilling these passages. Some of them very obscure and hard to know what to do with some of them remarkably clear and pointed and many others kind of in the middle but but it's really quite a fascinating reality here um 
and I, and I want to, and I'm, I always struggle for words for how to catch this, but do you, do you understand that we wouldn't talk, be talking about Jesus? He would never have emerged in history at all if it weren't for the context of Jewish history, Hebrew religion, Hebrew literature, and, and the fascinating aspects of that literature that even by the time of Jesus then have, have created this image of some expectation, some anticipation of an anointed who would seem to be prophet, king, priest, and what? I, it, it's really interesting. <laughs> it really is. I, for me personally, when I, when I have those times, um, where I, where I, I don't know how to put this except I'll just put it this somewhat blunt way where I try to convince myself not to be a Christian. I, I really try to convince myself that, you know, maybe it's just all wrong. I, and I, and I'm just, I've just swallowed this thing whole and I, and, and it's, it's either a, a you know, just a deliberate fabrication, but that's really hard to make work. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just a grandiose misunderstanding where a whole bunch of people just read him wrong completely. You know, you try to do that whole thing. But when I really work at it, it's really hard. And one of the reasons is this extremely elaborate intersection between the person of Jesus and passage after passage after passage in the Hebrew Bible. It's really a fascinating study. And I encourage you to approach it as a fascinating, as a study, whether you find it fascinating or not, as a study that I don't think you'll ever get to the end of. Um, there's just layer upon layer in it. And, and, and I think as we come to Jesus's final night in the, in the meal with his disciples and then heading to the cross by way of the garden, we, we enter into a, a, a dimension of this that runs quite deep indeed. In the, in the passages, um, that we've looked at in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, we saw that there's, there were, um, three questions that were brought to Jesus that appear in all three of those gospels. The first one was whether to pay taxes to Caesar and they're trying to catch Jesus. The second one was about, um, uh, about marriage in the resurrection. And then the third one seems to have been a little bit more of an honest, straightforward question about eternal life and the commandments, the, the two great commandments. <clears throat> After people have asked Jesus questions, he then says to them, okay, I've answered your questions. I got a question for you. And he says to the temple authorities, what do you have here in Matthew 22, verse 41 on the handout? That while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And, and here he's, he's appealing to sort of established tradition at this point. The Pharisees know, know the answer. And they say to him, he's the son of David. That's who Sonny is. Jesus then says to them, okay, then how does David writing in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he also be David's son? And no one was able to offer him a word and answer, nor did anyone 
dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> these these are great moments, incidentally. I I mean they're worth a smile and a laugh occasionally. Um the uh I love what Max uh Mark says here in verse thirty seven. David calls him Lord, so in what sense can he be his son? And the and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. You you do get this picture sometimes that they were kind of a lot of people were kind of enjoying seeing the temple authorities taken down a notch. Um yeah. Jesus wasn't the only one who saw certain uh hu- hubris uh in in those authorities. Uh but but don't miss the, the logic of the argument here, okay? Christ, the Messiah, is supposed to be a son of David. If he is understood to be David's son, how how can he also be David's Lord? And yet David pretty clearly calls him that, it would seem, in Psalm 110. And the answer is incarnation of the Son of God. The Son of God who was, in fact, through all past human history, the Lord, and therefore he was David's Lord, and David knew him to be Lord. But it is that Son of God who was David's Lord, who became incarnate through Mary, and was in the lineage of David, and in that sense, a son of David. And there could, therefore could be both David's Lord and David's son. Jesus just, this is, this is the brilliance of his teaching. He just hangs that one out there. The implication is pretty clear. And for us, to me, one of the implications is Luke's gospel is, Luke's gospel is an accurate portrayal of Jesus. He, he was the son of God incarnate. John's gospel is accurate. It was the logos of God incarnate. It was that logos son of God who was in fact David's Lord and is now incarnate as son of David. Now, that psalm is an interesting one because what you've got is a picture, as it were, of God talking to himself. The opening line is, the Lord said to my Lord, be seated at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. You go to Psalm 110, and you have not only that opening, the Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then in verse four, you have this additional image of David's Lord. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, David was not a priest forever. The Lord is not at this point speaking to David. The Lord is still speaking to David's Lord. And so David's Lord is being presented as a king whose scepter will stretch forth from Zion and as a priest whose priesthood will be forever which is what the order of Melchizedek would imply. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. This is, this is what I mean. It's kind of like, so who are we talking about? Who will this person be? Um, and, and so then Jesus is making the case 
it is it is Jesus. And keep this one in mind because it's not the last time this will emerge in this narrative that we're in in the next week or two. The beginning, you've got the Lord speaking to the Lord. And in case you're interested, it is Yahweh speaking to my Adonai. Um, and we can talk more about such things if you wanted. But um, in any case, it is Lord to Lord. And the Adonai recognize that Lord is one that David recognizes as Lord and who is both king and priest. Now, I would like to suggest that um, this idea of God talking to himself, of God making promises to himself, the father to the son, the son to the father, is sort of really at the core of the biblical narrative and of the revelation of God. Um, So we have that sort of thing here. I think you can find it fairly early on. I think I've, I've always thought it's fascinating that in the, in the, in the opening verses of creation, of the creation narrative, it is plural. Now, I understand that's kind of linguistic and it may just be that literary royal we. Um, but, but it is interesting that God says, let us make man in our image. And that while there's nowhere, there's no way to try to develop a Trinitarian theology from the passage. Reading the Trinitarian understanding of God back into the passage is not difficult to do in terms of God and the spirit that moves on the waters and the word of God by which God creates. At any rate, you've got this picture of God as relational within his own being. And I think one can safely say Trinitarian as it will eventually become clearer. And then you get to the story of God with Abraham. Initially, he is Abram, and then God calls him and covenants with Abram. And you have this idea then of covenanting, which basically is making and keeping promises. Two parties promising something to each other in a very solemn, serious manner. In the Old Testament, in this period, this kind of treaty type covenant um, would be one in which animals would be killed, they would be sacrificed animals, and the parts of the animal would be split and laid out, and the two parties of this covenant would pass through between the animals, make a promise to each other, and basically be saying, if I don't keep my part of this promise, may it be done to me as we have done to these animals. Okay, it's a very solemn, serious kind of a thing. In Genesis 15, you have one of these covenants being cut, and that's why it's called cutting a covenant. And there's a picture of God with Abram. And in the evening, um, as the sun's going down in verse 12 of Genesis 15, we're told that a deep sleep falls on Abram, darkness, fear. Um, God makes some promise, specific promises to Abram here about his own descendants, about his seed, about their land. Um, But in verse 17, it says that when the sun had set and it was very dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. It's interesting that Abraham himself did not pass between the pieces. 
these are not a, this is not an image of God and Abram cutting the covenant together. It's a picture of two images that I think both represent God and Abram is asleep. He's, he, but, but in his sleep, he is witnessing this. So Abraham is a witness to a covenant that I would say God the Father and God the Son are making with each other. They pass between the pieces. They establish the covenant. Abraham witnesses it and comes into its blessings by way of faith alone. It's not a cheap faith. It's a faith that expresses itself in obedience. But the reliability of this covenant is not in Abram's ability to believe. It is in the faithfulness of God to keep a promise to himself. And I, and I think that idea that, that at the heart of this biblical story, at the heart of the history of redemption, of accomplishing salvation, is this idea of a God who in this triune Godhead, and particularly father and son, a God who is making promises to himself, um, father and son to each other. And so you get to Psalm 110 and you have that kind of thing we've just seen that, that Jesus is citing. And then, um, there, there are places that this comes up elsewhere, but, but particularly, um, I would point you to the second half of Isaiah's prophecy. Um, and, and I can't take too much time on this, but, but starting in chapter 40 and running to the end, Isaiah's prophecy has to do with someone who is known as the servant, the servant of God. And initially, as that image appears, it would seem that Israel as a nation is that servant. But gradually it becomes clear that whatever, in whatever sense, Israel is the servant. And incidentally, it's fine for scripture to have more than one sense. I won't go down that rabbit trail but there there's a there is clearly a sense in which israel was to be a servant of god but there is someone who starts coming into view more and more as the servant and it is the servant of god and god speaks to this servant and the servant to god um and the servant emerges in more and more clear terms as the one through whom redemption will be accomplished so chapter 42 for instance um Verse, the first verse is, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. Um, in chapter 44, verse 6, which is all Isaiah, um, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. It's interesting that you've got the two persons, the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. In chapter 49, um, you have this at the beginning. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the womb of my mother, he named me. 
He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me. He has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Verse 5, now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Again, you've got this imagery of the Lord and his servant. My God is my strength. And then um, God is speaking now to the servant. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and its holy one to the despised one, to the one abhorred, to the servant of rulers. Um, the holy one of Israel has chosen you. So, so again, you, you get these pictures and I admit there's always, you know, it's, it's a lot of puzzlement with it, but there's always this, um, picture in these passages of, of God, the Lord speaking to his servant, in this case, um, the Lord. Um, other, other passages uh, I could cite in here as well, but let me go to the ones then that are best known. It's basically chapter 53, but it begins at the end of chapter 52 in verse 13. And by this time, the servant is clearly an individual. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance will be marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So this kind of contradictory picture of him being greatly exalted and lifted up, but also marred. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Going into chapter 53, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Okay, so we're talking about a servant who is growing up in in the sight of the Lord. He has no stately majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. He's not humanly impressive. In fact, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Describing this servant, continuing to describe him, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. It's God who is striking the servant, his servant. He was smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced or wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being landed on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. But, but it was God who did this to him. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him, the Lord and the servant. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth, the silence of the servant in the face of death, it would seem. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his descendants, who can speak of them? Meaning, giving the picture at least of him not having any children, no marriage and family in view uh who can speak let's see that for he was cut off out of the land of the living so he is cut off for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due his grave was assigned with wicked men yet with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth an innocent servant who bears the transgressions of others. And then verses 10 to 12, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Here are the two persons again, the Lord and the servant. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offering, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Okay, so there's there's sort of the deal. The Lord is crushing the servant, putting him to grief, but if the servant would, in fact, fulfill his role and be the guilt offering, he would then see his offspring. He would prolong his days. So verse 8 says he's going to be cut off, and he will have no descendants. Verse 10 says, But if he is faithful, he will have offspring, fruit of his work, and his days will be prolonged as well as cut off. In fact, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. And, and it may be that the word should be there is life. He will see life and be satisfied, but he, he will see again somehow, despite having been cut off and suffered the anguish. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And now it would seem that God is speaking to the servant and saying, and so I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the treasure with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So part of what I want to, want to emphasize is that we don't just have sort of messianic imagery. We we don't just have that alone. We have this picture of God and the servant of the Lord God and David's Lord. And they are sort of in conversation, as it were, and they are making promises. They are covenanting together. And so when you come to the final night, and we can go back to the um, handout at this point. When we come back to the final night, we are we are no longer in the ancient, ancient world of cutting covenants. But what Jesus introduces is what he calls the cup of the covenant. 
And so in the meal that they share on the eve of Jesus's death, verse 26 of chapter 26 in Matthew, again, back on the handout, Jesus takes some bread and after blessing, he breaks it, gives it to the disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. Let John 6 come back to mind in all of this, of course, about eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. And then when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In in this moment, anticipating his death and shedding his blood to the point of death, he offers this cup of wine as his blood of the covenant, meaning the, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant will be his death in which he bears the transgressions and redemption is accomplished. And, and he offers that cup to his followers for them to participate in the benefits of the covenant. The covenant that is established not by our ability to believe, but by the ability of the Father and the Son to be faithful to each other, and into which we are brought by faith. And we are, we are, we are brought into the benefits by our union with Christ. And the meal with the bread and the wine is a participation in that. This is the cup of the covenant. And from there, Jesus goes out into the garden. And what is his prayer? What is the image of the prayer? It's there at the bottom of the handout. They go to Gethsemane. He tells his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. He takes Peter and James and John And he begins to be grieved and distressed. And he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me, please. My dear buddies, will you please just do that much for me right now? They keep falling asleep, but he goes off to pray. He falls on his face, praying, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It is the imagery of the cup. It is the cup of the covenant. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He finds his disciples sleeping. He goes off a second time to pray, saying, and and this is an interesting nuance with Matthew. If this cup cannot pass away, if it can't, unless I drink it, then your will be done. And a third time he comes back and prays the same thing once more must must i drink this cup of the covenant isn't there some other way to do this um in mark's telling in verse 36 he has abba father dear father my dear father um all things are possible for you (laughs) isn't there can't we come up with some other way to do this i mean seriously this is Jesus knows what he is looking at here. Isn't there some other way? But the Father and the Son have covenanted together that this is the way. This is the way redemption will be accomplished. 
And so you have down in the lower right-hand corner of the, of the handout what actually appears in Matthew and Mark, which is Jesus comes back after the third time. The disciples are asleep again, and he wakes them up, and he says, okay, guys, the hour is at hand. Arise. It is time to go. And it's like him coming off the Mount of Transfiguration as he comes back into the valley moaning, how long, how long do I have to put up with you people? How long do I have to stay? in agony and as we saw then his answer is i will stay as long as i have to to do what i came to do but that doesn't mean that it's not an agony it doesn't mean that it's not a struggle it doesn't mean that on the final night of his life he's not going to be in agony in agony for hours with his father as he faces up to what he has agreed to and and drinks that cup um there are other dimensions to this um you know things like psalm 16 you will not suffer your holy one to see decay he will die but you will not suffer him to see decay how does that work it's the it's the promise of resurrection this is where the father's promises come into view and so those last few verses 10 11 and 12 in isaiah 53 do bring us into the father's keeping his promises that jesus will have offspring there will be fruit to his labor he will prosper his life will be extended even though it has been cut off the holy spirit as paul talks about him is the promised holy spirit and and so there is all of this that follows from the death of Christ. And thus, I think, in a sense, the covenant becomes a new covenant because because of all the newness that comes with it, not just in the in the resurrect, the death and resurrection of Christ, but in Pentecost and the coming of the spirit. And then just one last little reference here. It's in Hebrews and Hebrews is its own interesting study in this. Um, because it, it, it's also about the new covenant. But in chapter 13, at the end of the book, there's a benediction that you may recognize where the writer says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a wonderful combination of doxology and benediction of glory to God and blessing to his people. But isn't it interesting? You don't need this phrase in there through the blood of the eternal covenant, but it's there. How, how was Jesus raised from the dead? That great shepherd of the sheep that God, the God of peace brought him up from the dead. That was, that was the God of peace keeping his promise to the great shepherd of the sheep. It, it wasn't, it was, it was a work that came about through the blood of the eternal covenant, a covenant kept. May that God who is faithful to his promises equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so I would say to you, when you participate in the communion meal of Jesus, our Lord's Supper, you are participating in a sense in the way that Abram participated originally. And, and it's in a, in a way that, that points to the faithfulness of God. And, and you just are casting yourself on him.
it's not about, oh, boy, I hope I can keep my part of this deal. No, you just you just die to yourself. That's how you participate. You die. And, and it is a faith that expresses itself in all sorts of ways. But but the faithfulness lies with God, the father and God, the son. This is one of the reasons why some of, you know, I, I do think we're missing something on this phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ in Pauline literature that gets translated as faith in Jesus Christ. When I think what's really in view is the faith of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by which he fulfills his promises, by which he fulfills the covenant and accomplishes redemption. And so then when Paul says at the beginning of the Galatian epistle, the life I now live, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ, who died for me and gave himself up for me. That it's pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's what is so wonderful about this, is that we are just humbly resting in the work of the Father and the Son together. And out of that work flows the work of the Holy Spirit and all the blessings that follow. I think there's a lot going on here then. And I think this imagery of the cup of the covenant in my blood at the supper, and then the cup that Jesus chooses to drink but agonizes over is is finds its context in everything we've been looking at. And, and that could be traced still more, I'm sure. Um, but that much, um, we got, we got a few minutes. I, I'd be glad to hear your thoughts. And, and again, I'll just invite you, don't hesitate to send me notes or, or whatever. I'm glad to talk about these things, but, but what kind of questions or thoughts does that evoke for you right at this point? Anything you want to pick up on? And an interesting observation that in the covenant that with Abraham, um, he falls asleep in that moment. And then the cup that Jesus is talking about in the garden, his followers are sleeping. It's just an interesting observation of um, that kind of repeating and that idea of um, falling asleep during the moment of like a covenant being um, partaken. Mm I don't know if I have thoughts to add, but I'm currently mind blown. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've never thought about, I've never like been taught about the covenant with like Abraham and this like imagery that you pointed out um, in verse 17. I feel like I have a lot to, to think about. Verse 17. Where, where... In, in, uh, in Genesis. 15 verse 17 when the sun had gone down that part um yeah i don't even know what my questions are yet but i my head's spinning (laughs) and and know that um the, the covenant idea is complicated i and so you've got a covenant with adam you've got a covenant with noah you've got various covenants along the way um and and so there's a lot of work to be done around all this. But but I will say, I mean, I've grown up in a theological tradition that is covenantal, that, that it sees this way. Our denominational college is covenant college. Our denominational seminary is covenant seminary. Uh, there are reasons for that. Um, but I'll also say, having grown up in it, I, I don't think the heart of this came through until, I don't know, some well into my adult life somewhere. 
And, and, I, and I'll go ahead and say one of the things that did it was there is this, these documents called the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. And the larger catechism, which almost nobody on the planet would read at this point, um, except that Lauren will do it next year, I hope. At any rate, uh, the larger catechism has a question in there where it says simply, with whom did the Father make the covenant of, of grace? And you kind of go, well, uh, uh, Abraham, I guess, or Noah, or, or maybe David. or and, and it just says very simply, with Jesus Christ, the Son. And And I kind of went, huh. That that's kind of interesting. And then and then you've got all these sort of dispensations of the expression of the covenant and the notion of covenant and bringing people into the covenant. But but I do think at the heart of it is this this understanding that is rooted in the Trinitarian nature of God in his own relational nature um, and, and that it ushers in this redemptive work of the son. And the and the fa- son and the father keeping promises to each other. You know, with Abram, for instance, you you want to go back and read, starting at least chapter twelve, read on through chapter seventeen. Um, the promises of God take various forms in there. Uh, then go on over to the Apostle Paul and see what he's doing in Galatians and Romans um, and how he's reading some of that language. That becomes its own fascinating study. Um, it, it, it's the kind of thing that needs a lot of broad reading um, and rereading and questioning, frankly. I, I, I will say to you again, question me, okay? Don't don't assume that somebody called Dr. Horner said it, and therefore it must be okay. Uh, keep keep going back and and questioning and working it and see what you think. Dr. Horner, um, the Matthew, um, where he's, where Jesus is saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Mm -hmm. Um, and him kind of unpacking the question of how can how can he be a son of David or David's son, and also David calls him Lord. Is is Jesus posing this question in anticipation that this will be a difficulty for people theologically that they'll that they'll wonder about this or they'll worry about this? So he's presenting this difficult question, even though he's not answering it really. And they're not answering it, but he's, why, you know? Yeah. Um, couple thoughts just quickly. Uh, as I say, this is not the only time we're going to run into this Psalm in these final chapters. At this point, Jesus asks the question and does what he often does. Ask the question, turns around and walks away. But the implication I think is clear enough that somehow it's not this part's not clear, but somehow he is pointing to himself as the answer to the question. Now, depending on what people know about his parentage, they may or may not know how how to work with that. But at this point, he is just kind of um hanging it out there. Now, in his actual trial, this will come up again. 
Um, and and I, I think it's clear enough that he is making a reference to the opening phrase of Psalm 110, along with a phrase from Daniel. In other words, he is he is quoting two of probably the most central messianic passages that anybody would have recognized at the, at the time. Um, and so he is at that point, I think, very clearly answering his question, at least uh, as to the assertion that he is the answer to the question. Now, what then becomes interesting is how Matthew starts his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, son of who? Son of Abraham, son of David. And and that beginning, you see, it kicks off the argument that Matthew is making throughout the entire book. Matthew establishes in the first verses that Jesus is the son of David and is to be understood as such. So as far as the reader of Matthew or the listener to Matthew's account, whether in the first century or the 21st century, we've got Jesus as the son of David. So we, we can go with, 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 with that much. And the Christ is the son of David. And now he is also David's Lord. And you go, okay, we can put this together. And so I want to give Matthew credit <laughs> as well as Jesus for laying this out in this way. This is, this is by no means accidental for Matthew. And this is part of why I've said all along the way Matthew order, organizes and orders his material is around the argument from the very first phrase of the, of the book to the end. Thank you all as always. Um, yeah, there's a lot here. Uh, keep reading. And next week, what we will do is we will stay in this period. We'll add John's gospel, and that's four chapters, chapters 13 to 17. Um, we'll look at that, and then we will look at all four gospels to also pick up on Peter's experience um, of the final night and death. Um, uh, so just continue to read and be meditating in these in these passages. Um, we're, what, just a couple of weeks from Good Friday, I would think. So this is appropriate meditation for anyone who is wanting to um, really thoughtfully proceed on through Lent, however you might be recognizing it, um, and, and specifically coming to that weekend to to Good Friday. Um, that that is, I don't know. It's it's always a competition between the incarnation and the crucifixion, between Christmas and Good Friday. Um, weirdly, even more than Easter for me as the two most significant days in human history. Um, but, but I do encourage you be reading in this section we're in, uh, in these, in these next couple of weeks. Always good to see you all.